Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. This marks the first of our regular episodes in which the focus is on conversations with two members of the Junto community, or the tribe as we call it. The first is with Deborah Jackson, founder and CEO of Aero Payments and a Junto alumnus. The second conversation is with Rich Lyons, co-founder and CEO of Lyons CG, a Cap Gemini company, and also a longtime mentor with the Junto Institute. After that, I share some closing reflections that were inspired by my interactions with both of them. So let's begin with Deborah Jackson, whose company graduated from Junto in 2016 yet remains actively engaged with our community and our programs. Deb co-founded the company in 2005 with a focus on helping small companies set up their credit card processing and merchant accounts. Aero became known within the payment solutions industry as a team of trusted technology advisors who care deeply about protecting client success. Then, after nine years of steady growth, she had the opportunity to take sole ownership of the company. And under her guidance, Aero Payments has experienced major organizational change, shifting from a boiler room culture to an authentic values-based approach of thoughtful service and expert care. I met Deborah four years ago through one of our alumni. She then enrolled in our program in 2016, and I've personally witnessed that organizational change occur and an increasing focus on growth and improvement. Deborah herself is admired within Junto for her joyous spirit, constant smile, deep empathy, and diligent preparation. And as I've gotten to know her team over the years, I can also add that she's admired for her ability to lead with love. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. And uh, like we always do, let's start with the emotion wheel and how you're feeling right now. I would say that I'm feeling uh, a little anxious. This is my first podcast but mostly excited just to see where this goes. I am feeling very excited. <laughs> also a little playful. I had a good conversation a little earlier that's got me in more of a playful mood than I typically am. Um, so let's start with your first recollection of leadership in action. So in college, I was asked to go to Greece and do an archaeological dig. I had a professor that I had done some um, research on some Greek pottery, and he thought that I would fit in well with the group going over. At the time, I didn't know I was the only undergrad going. Mm -hmm. And we literally were going to do a dig on the Palace of Nestor. And I got there, and they had all of this pottery, like all these shards that they had found over these years. And they needed somebody to basically inventory them. And because I had some experience, he asked me to be in charge of it. So Mm. I just started doing my work. And then pretty soon I had two graduate students, three graduate students, five, 10, 15 graduate students that were following my direction. And Dr. Cooper, Fred said, I don't know what you're doing, but keep going because everyone's doing their work. And that was my first experience where I was just doing my thing mm-hmm. and it seemed to be working. 
How conscious were you that you were leading people? I wasn't until Fred said something and he took me aside and gave me a little pep talk, I guess you would say. And I was surprised, but also um, it was one of those experiences that has stuck with me my whole life. Let's go into what your overall philosophy is towards personal growth, leadership, just at a high level. Mm -hmm. How do you look at this whole idea of personal growth and development? Personally, I look at how I can always be better. I never assume I'm the smartest person in the room. In fact, I always assume everybody else is smarter than me, which puts me in a vulnerable place, but I also learn a lot. And I compare myself to where I was a month ago, a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And that helps me see my growth and what I've learned. And I just have a deep desire to learn. Um, every day I, I wake up with a, a positive attitude. I mean, that's one thing about me. Like I just have a desire to just keep pushing myself and going. I wait, if I have a bad day, I just, the next day I generally shake it off and move forward. And, um, the other main thing that I do personally is at the beginning of the year, I take really 11 things that I focus on and I break it down into myself, my family, my friends, my husband, and spirituality kind of on one hand. Mm -hmm. And then the other hand, I focus on career, health, financials, education, and fun. And every year, basically, I take those ideas and write two or three things that I want to do for each of those. And then every quarter... I will take time to look at what have I done in them. And it's never, I never get all of them done. It's just, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but, you know, if I'm on it enough that I can look at it every quarter, you know, I can pick up, oh, I haven't been spending much time with my family as much as I want to, or, you know, some things are going better than others. So it's a way for me to, to balance things out. So in a recent session that we had, you actually brought up one of your lists mm -hmm. from some time ago. Right. I can't remember how long ago it was. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've been doing this for quite some time, right? Yeah. I, I can't remember how long ago it was, maybe five or seven years ago. I'm not sure. But it was amazing that all but one or two of the items had been checked off. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised. I mean, I was looking for something that just happened across it. And mm -hmm. that's why I brought it to class because it was just, or to the forum. I just, I was just kind of amazed like, oh, I did all those things. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a, a moment to reflect and acknowledge that I had finished them. You mentioned earlier that you have this desire to learn. What do you trace that back to? I think I always look at myself as the underdog. I was, um, I'm the middle child of, I have an older brother that I was always following around. And whatever he was into, whether it was baseball and I followed him to the baseball field and, you know, sure enough, they put me, the girl at the end and nobody could hit the ball. And finally I hit the ball and they're like, oh, we're going to move her up. I'm like, okay, I'm over this. I'm moving on to the next thing. So yeah, I, I'll throw a lot of things at the wall to see what will stick. So I've known you for a few years and have been in dozens of conversations and sessions with you over that time. But in the past six to nine months, you seem to be much more focused on growth and improvement. Was there something that drove that? And then secondly, what have you been working on specifically during this you know, more recent time? 
there are a few things that have happened. Um, I've read a few books. One of them you recommended, actually, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Of course, I read it like forever ago and picked it back up and thought, oh, well, I'll just listen to it this time. I just did an audio. And I was shocked at how relevant it was. And it was all about character, which is so key. It just struck a nerve with me. And then additionally, we've been doing the sessions of having you come to our workplace and learning a new skill. And the first one was listening. And I really did it. Like I really focused on it and it changed my interactions with people. Instead of thinking about what I was going to say next, I was really listening at what they were saying. And I didn't say what I was going to say next. Mm -hmm. Normally I would ask a question instead and it would, the conversation would go deeper and the return feeling back was just amazing. Particularly I met three new women and they felt like best friends. Mm. It was a really unique experience and they keep searching me out now. It really had a profound effect on me. And I also have been reading The Atomic Habits Mm -hmm. and I would be somebody that if I didn't get it right 100%, I kind of lose interest with it or you know, I just go on to the next thing. But the idea that I only had to do a little bit better every day really appealed to me. So I've been building on that. And I think the combination of all of them is it's changing how I interact with people. So speaking of, you mentioned that you've interacted with three new women recently. Uh, you have been involved with Junto Women since we piloted this program last year. Then you also got involved when we launched the program, which has been wonderful. Uh, talk a little about your experiences in those conversations and how they are shaping or have shaped you and those around you. And how can you see those ideas and concepts shaping other people, regardless of gender or gender identity? Because this program, as you know, we've created to provide a space for women to talk about things that they may not otherwise have the space for unless it's a one-on-one basis. But as a as a person who I don't have a, I'm not in the room, as you know, but I'm hearing things from different people. And what I'm hearing is there is something there that can apply to us men and people who identify with other genders. My first experience with the Junta women was a pretty small, close-knit group of women meeting and having a space, a safe space to talk and feel open and secure and share their experiences. And these were topics that we don't typically talk about, uh, whether it's experiences with men that were unfavorable or it's about how to deal with a board. I mean, it was a huge range of topics. So for me, it was um, feeling that I'm not alone in this. And for others, where it's taken off now with Junta Women is really amazing that all of these women, a big group of women, can have that experience of sharing and feeling open and close. Because I think that's what life is all about, is acceptance and recognition. And it does both. And I think it's universal to men as well. And it really boils down to listening. It really boils down to all of the things that we learn through Junto. So let's stay on this gender path for a little bit. 
I've had a lot of really great conversations with Catherine, my co-founder, over the years around this topic of feminine leadership and masculine leadership. And what do those mean? What do they imply? What can we as men take from women? What can women as women take from men without feeling obligated, like they have to do things? What are some of the things in your view, because you've got a wonderful marriage, Mm -hmm. you are very confident and assertive as a woman leader from my perspective. You see that in Junto, like many organizations, we have a lot of men involved. And so where I'm going with this is that you're obviously around a lot of men. You've got a, a male on your leadership team. What are some of the simple things that we can do as men to become better leaders from your perspective as a female leader? So for me, what men can do to be better leaders is to really look at women as equal. And I had an experience with equal pay that I'd love to share. And that is when I was in college, I was working for a large healthcare organization in their programming department. And the executive director came to me and said, quite proudly, I'm hiring this woman because I can get twice the experience for the same price. Mm -hmm. And he was proud to tell me that. And then proceeded to tell me, you know, you should go into programming and you can make $100,000 a year. And in my head, I wasn't on my feet enough to have anything to say back to him at the moment. But in my my own thoughts were, I'm going to blow $100,000 out of the water. And how incredibly horrible that you're hiring this woman for that reason. And then the experience was she came in, she completely kicked ass. She was fantastic. And the men around her were not doing the work. And she finally got fed up and said, I'm doing all of the work. None of these men can do it. I'm leaving. So without that mindset of respect, it's just, it's so sad. It just, I, um, my ask is you know, respect. I don't think men, you know, this whole talk now about men and being fearful and are they doing the right thing or not? It's, it's so simple. It's just be respectful. That's all, that's all it is. So let's pick up on this idea of respect. And I realize that it could be a loaded question here. What are some things that men can do who struggle with the idea of respect? Like, how do we get granular with that? What can I do as a male to be more respectful? Or what can my peer group do to be more respectful towards women? Mm -hmm. Well, to me, respect is really about kindness. It's being kind to others to listen to them without making presumptions. I have a daughter that I'm constantly teaching and I'm just saying, Emma, is that being kind? And I'm not saying it's good or bad because I'm not trying to delineate those things. It's more about being a kind human being, showing that gentleness. And I have to say it a hundred times a year or 300 times a year, but you see the rewards of it as well. And when she does things, it's so loving. It's so, or she's coming up and caring for someone or she, she meets new people and she taps somebody on the shoulder and asks them, you know, if they want, you know, to share her colors. I mean, she's just being kind. Right. And so it's regardless of, sex or, you know, she, in fact, she was just invited to a birthday party and the mom said, well, there's five boys that are going, 
but my son really wants Emma to be there. Are you okay with that? Is she okay with that? And she went. You know, she doesn't play video games that just she hasn't been introduced really. <laughs> I'm not a gamer. But she picked up the lightsabers and was going at it with them and got the boys to play with the lightsabers and she would corral them to do things. So, I mean, it just I think it's just becoming much more natural now and I'm a complete optimist about this world and where things are going. I know that right now it's challenging to be an optimist some days, but in general, I think that men and women are learning how to communicate better and be better to each other. And I see it in every generation that's coming up as well. It's just this acceptance of people is really coming through. And that really is what I think this gender question all boils down to. It's just accepting everybody who they are. We are different, but we but we can treat each other with kindness. I think that this is golden because I would argue that everyone, I'm going to go on a limb here, but everyone has been kind at least once in their adult life. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Right? And so using that as a, where I'm going is that that could be a, a benchmark or a standard. Mm -hmm. So as we come back to this idea of respect, or even to some extent, the idea of love, which is also a very squishy topic, that when someone is faced with this question of, well, what does it mean to show respect? Or what does it mean to show love? When was the last time you were kind to someone? Or another example is the grandmother test that we always hear, right? So we talk about, you know, with our kids, say things or do things that you would say or do in front of your grandmother as a standard to meet. Same thing, you know, back to this idea of gender relations is how would you treat your grandmother? So I love that as a minimum threshold to meet, mm -hmm. which is when was the last time you were kind or remember a time, think about a time when you were kind to someone. Mm -hmm. And you think about it, even if you are in any situation, any business situation or at home, I mean, we all feel lots of things all the time, you know, and multiple feelings at one moment, but how we choose to act, we can still choose to be kind. And that can be your goal. So Deborah, in a recent session, uh, you talked a little bit about how you are incorporating growth improvement in your home. Mm -hmm. And I would hope and imagine that most of us as parents or spouses or life partners are doing just that. In fact, I remember one of my good friends telling me back in our early 20s that she wanted to marry this guy she was dating because he made her a better person. It was the first time I'd ever heard that, and it has stuck with me to this day. So you're obviously doing that with your husband and your daughter. You're, you're helping them become better people and better humans. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you guys have been doing in the home to that effect. Listening has had a profound effect at my house. Uh, so what we realized when we started listening was how much we interrupt each other. And Adam and I would interrupt each other constantly and Emma as well. And so we sat Emma down and said, okay, we noticed this is happening how can we fix it? And she got so excited that she could come up with the answer of how <laughs> we could fix this. And at our house, we have what we call the observation chair. It's from Montessori. I did not think of this, but it's basically, it's two minutes in a chair or where, anywhere where you just think about what happens and you just kind of take your time out and then you apologize afterwards. So she suggested, and we agreed that we should do an observation chair for when we interrupt. And 
sure enough, I mean, that first weekend I was in the observation chair multiple times and so was my husband and so was Emma. And, but it changed the way I communicated with Adam. And that particular weekend, we were discussing something that was heated, but I remember because I was different, like I was treating, I was waiting, I was listening. The interruption that I would normally do because I didn't do it, everything fizzled a little. And I just took the pause and then said, okay, I hear you, but this is what I, how I see it. And it was a little challenging for me <laughs> to hold my tongue, but in the end, it was just so grand. And that, that led us to having that discussion with Emma of, okay, let's do this together as a family. You know, we don't always do it, but it's been fantastic. So have you set up an observation chair <laughs> at Aero Payments? No. <laughs> no, we haven't set up an observation chair there, but we do things a little differently at Aero Payments. We we have our weekly meeting, our priorities meeting, and during that meeting we do the emotion wheel. We talk about our highs, our lows, and our ha. Are, are funny. So it's our high, low, ha, very Hawaiian sounding. And every week I learn more about my group and it's just taking that time to really hear what's going on in their lives that I didn't hear. And even though I'm with them constantly and at the end, we wrap it up with acknowledgements and never before have I been in a, a company setting where we leave a meeting with big smiles on our faces because more often than not, Everybody is acknowledged for something, and it's just a wonderful feeling that you were you were really seen and, and heard and supported by your colleagues. So on this topic of acknowledgments, let's finish off with closing appreciations. Well, thank you for this opportunity. It, you've made it very easy and enjoyable to sit here. And beyond that, I've really had a profound change in how I see the world and I think how I'm perceived in the world through what I've learned with you, Raman. So I, I don't know how to express enough how much it's changed my life. It's changed my relationship with my husband and my daughter and, and my team. I'm very, very proud of that because our, our company mission is to improve the life and lifestyles of our team and our clients, and, and that's happening. So I'm very, very grateful. That's wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate what you're doing with Emma, your daughter, because as I've shared very publicly many times, all of these tactics and practices that are rooted in emotional intelligence can have a profound effect on us as adults, as you just shared with your story and as I've shared with my story. But to think that there are now going to be children growing up with these, not just children of people associated with Junto because emotional intelligence has become very widespread as a subject and as a practice. And to think that we're going to have children who are growing up learning how to listen at the age of five, six, seven, and how to be empathetic. Um, so I appreciate that you're doing the, that work. Like that's hard work. It's hard work. As it's already hard enough to be a parent in general, but to know that you're adding that to it. I just appreciate, well, first of all, I appreciate that you're doing it. And secondly, I appreciate that someday I will get to meet her and yes. see this wonderful <laughs> child um, exactly. growing up. Yes. I'd love that.
So thank you for being here. Thank you. And sharing your thoughts on how you've been flourishing and how you're helping your family and team flourish. Thank you again, Raman. Our next conversation is with Rich Lyons, a longtime mentor and instructor at the Junto Institute. Rich is CEO and president of Lions CG, a Capgemini company, and the industry's premier e-commerce digital agency, serving brands, retailers, and B2B organizations with tailored solutions that maximize their online potential. He co-founded Lions in 2003 after getting his engineering degree from the University of Michigan and an MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern University. I met Rich about 10 years ago when they had 40 employees. And then in 2017, Lion CG was acquired by Capgemini, a global consulting and professional services firm based in Paris with over 200,000 employees in over 40 countries. Back when I launched the Junto Institute, I asked Rich to teach our class on building a sales team since I knew he had done it for Lions CG. He's been with us since that time and we've gotten to know one another, having some pretty inspiring conversations along the way. In addition to teaching and mentoring at Junto, Rich also teaches and is a founding member of the Wright Foundation for the Realization of Human Potential. More importantly to me, beyond his professional accolades, is the fact that Rich is a thoughtful, gentle, focused man and leader with a deep soul. Welcome, Rich. Really glad to have you here today. Thanks. We're going to start as we do customarily with our emotion wheel. So I would love to hear how you're feeling right now. A few things, excited, uh, which would be in the fear category, but definitely excited, a little scared. You know, it's it's always fun to have these conversations. Uh, and then also just this morning, I feel I feel moved. You know, I feel love. I had a conversation with my daughter. Uh, we were texting back and forth, you know, so uh, just feeling moved by her and who she's becoming. You know, my daughter who's in college, so feeling very moved just by, you know, our interaction. Uh, and kind of soft and, and sweet uh, from that perspective. Awesome. I can relate to that. I, f- I felt the same last night when I was doing the same with my daughter, texting her back and forth. Um, I'm feeling pretty enthralled right now with some of the things that uh, are developing um, personally and professionally. And then also uh, a little irritable because I didn't have as productive of an early morning as I <laughs> typically do. And uh, I still don't know why. So I'll uh, reflect on that later on today or tomorrow. But in any case, as I like to start conversations, I'm going to ask you the question, what is your first recollection of leadership? Yeah, I reflect back to kind of high school. And, and if you uh, think back to student council, you know, running for student council, and I remember you know, being the president of our class. And that was a, a thing, right? And and then in theory, that's a leadership position. You're supposed to be leading. Uh, but in reality, it was more of a popularity contest, right? And it's interesting to think about, okay, I'm, I was winning and I win year after year. And there became a point uh, like my senior year in high school where it was, do I want to run again? And did it have meaning? You know, it was just this it was like a popularity contest. I'm getting elected. I'm a popular person, but what is this council doing and is it doing anything? And really the answer was no, we weren't really doing anything. Or I should say personally, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't pushing forward agendas. I really wasn't doing anything. So an interesting leadership challenge where I didn't run my senior year, you know, looking at what is leadership? Is it just a position or, or do you have an actual role and, a, and an obligation and a responsibility and kind of caveat that too. Also, 
you know, being a leader on the football team, like I was elected captain of our football team and we had tri-captains. So we had three captains. Um, but looking at similarly, what does that mean? And it was a little easier for me on the field to be a leader just in terms of go for it, in terms of at practice, I'm given a hundred percent, you know, I'm running my ass off. I'm, I'm doing things fully and I'm leading that way. Like I, I was clear on that type of leadership, um, but I was also felt vulnerable um, as that leader and not, you know, necessarily being the most aggressive person. We're playing football. And I remember one time my coach called me timid, like we're watching films and, you know, I was called timid and I was like appalled, like how would that happen? And, and it's funny to feel like to be a leader, you had to be perfect. To be a leader, you're not timid. To be a leader of that team, you don't have fault. You know, you had to be kind of this outstanding person and you can't have fault. You can't do something wrong and make mistakes. And I think, you know, that's carried a long way into, you know, being versus doing and, you know, some of the things I'm working on now where back then it was like leadership was all about doing and you had to set an example by doing and you better fucking do it right and perfectly. And then, you know, what a limited view of a leader, you know, because all that sets it up for like you're here by yourself and you're alone and there's no one to support you, you know, so interesting. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that uh, I'm trying to achieve with this podcast is to bring some of the conversations that I've had the privilege of having over the years with a variety of people in, in our community. And uh, you and I have had some really inspiring, deeply personal conversations. And uh, where I want to start is inspired by one of the talks that we had about where we've come as humans and as men in our lives. And uh, we, I remember once we had lunch and we talked a little bit about who we were in our 20s and, right. and, and what we <laughs> were. And so um, we'd love for you to kind of riff on that a, a little bit as you reflect back you know, we're both now in mid age, mid career stage. It'll be 54 next month. Well, happy <laughs> birthday in advance. Just share a little bit about who you were, you know, 20, 30 years ago, who you, you know, see yourself being today. And then we're going to get into a little bit of how that actually happened. Yeah. I think uh, it's interesting to think back coming out of college, like, you know, I, I thought I had a plan you know, in terms of where I was going and who I was going to be. And that plan was based on what I would call an old model of manhood, how I thought men were supposed to be and how I was raised, you know, and, and part of that was to be stoic. I thought the goal in life for me was to be stoic. Never let someone know that they got you. Never show that vulnerability. You know, and it was so much external locus of control. Like, so I'm looking to you to determine if I'm okay. I'm not looking inside. It's all outside. So if you're happy and if you, you know, and if I'm looking around, then that's my reflection of me outside, not inside at all. You know, so coming out of undergraduate, I was an engineer, University of Michigan. So you can imagine very regulator, I would say, you know, trying to keep things in my control, very engineer mind come to Chicago and I had a plan, I'm going to work and then I'm going to go back to graduate school and then I'm going to get the cherry job. That's just what I'm going to do. So I had this job, I had this consulting firm and things are going well, striving, you know, normal, very successful, striving. And the interesting thing was that I met 
Gertrude, who's now my wife. And we start dating and everything. But the interesting thing is we went through the same pattern that all of my relationships have always gone through. It's kind of like, it's really fun and everything's great. And you have this honeymoon period, but then you get to this point and I never thought it was necessarily me, you know, because everything's outside of me. You, You know, this point where I start feeling uncomfortable too close, you know? And, and I remember saying to her, like, our relationship's just not fun anymore because I didn't have the capability to even have conversations, you know, as a man, like I, and I watched my parents divorce. So I have beliefs that conflict is bad. Conflict leads to divorce. So why am I going to have conflict with this person? And as soon as we start having conflict, I'm like, I'm out. You know, thank God for her to kind of lead me and say, you know, we need to have these conversations and that that I wasn't equipped for, or I didn't even see the value of having conflict. If you think about radical candor and some of the things now, like back then, are you kidding me? Like, why would I want feedback? So we kind of got through that. And as I say, I give my, my wife a lot of credit for that because, you know, we've, we did get engaged. I kind of got through my discomfort um, and say, okay, I'm going to do this, but not having the tools or skill set. Like it's, it's funny, you know, obviously I had a plan for my education and my development as a business person, more on the traditional side, not necessarily on the emotional side, which we can talk about, but you don't really have that for relationships. Like no one really talks about that. And obviously there's a huge crossover between both, but I remember we got engaged and then Gertrude's boss was going through a divorce. So he said, if there's anything I can recommend to you guys, like I was 24, she was 23, very young. Work on your communication. It was reactive because he's going through a divorce, but still very good feedback. And go see this guy, this friend of mine, Dr. Bob Wright, and go see him and do some premarital counseling. So she comes home and says, hey, guess what my boss said? He recommended we go see this guy, Dr. Bob, to do premarital counseling. And I was like, no fucking way. I mean, I literally was like, are you fucking kidding me? Why would we do that? So who was I? Why would we do that? I'm on top of my game. I'm going places. I'm successful. But success was defined very, very differently for me back then. Success was only career. I'm not talking about relationship success, emotional success, or even how I felt about myself. I felt good about myself because I was accomplishing things. There was nothing to do about being. It was all about doing. So anyway, you know. Gertrude always wins, you know, if you, <laughs> if you want to have a happy relationship, you know, your wife or your significant other has to win some. So we did go do that. So we, I go into this meeting and it's funny, Dr. Bob has been a, a very important mentor and coach for me throughout my life. But if you talk to him about it, he's like, you are the most arrogant, cocky person I had ever met with. You know, I'm sitting back with my arms crossed, like, you know, because I'm like, fine, I'll go, but fuck you. Like, this is stupid. So interesting that that was my entry point, I guess, to anything that I would call social or emotional intelligence. My vision was this job, next job, cherry job, right? So, so I still followed through on that, you know, like, okay, I went back to Kellogg and got my MBA. So that was my next step. And then coming out of Kellogg, you know, I had the cherry management consulting job, right? And that's kind of where my vision ended. Right. Because you think about it, you you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I'm getting my engineering degree. I'm going to work. Then I'm going to get my MBA. Then I'm going to have the cherry management consulting job, corner office, window, all that. And it's going to be awesome. 
you know, so Gertrude ends up going into and doing some more personal growth work and going into a lab. And I'm like, I'm good. My family's fine. You know, I don't need it, that kind of thing. But then I watch her grow and I watch her change and I watch her come alive. And the reason I married her was because she was so alive. Like, if you think about me contained, you know, not very expressive stoic, of course I married aliveness. But I didn't realize, though, in marriage, I need to take that on for myself. My viewpoint of marriage is you kind of have to integrate all of that. You can't just be like, okay, you be the aliveness. I'll be the rational. You know, she has to take on rational. I have to take on aliveness. So realizing that and starting to take it on and I watch her grow. And, I, and so reactively, I'm like, okay, I'm going back to grad school. I have two years. All right, I'll do personal growth for work for two years. There'll be another diploma I can put on the wall. I graduated. And I think, you know, it started to change my perspective of success, my perspective of relationship, and really looking at what am I trying to do in this world? You know, when you start talking about vision and mission and, you know, what am I trying to do? Is it just about what jobs I can have and how much money I make? Because then we had kids. You know, so I think things really started changing from who I was, let's say a, a fairly you know, stoic, shut down, arrogant at a certain level person to someone that has much more of a, a beginner's mind and is much more mission focused. And is now in my career, I look a lot more about being than doing, whereas I was only defined by achievement and doing. And can I kind of back off and be and really create space? And when I think about my company, how was I kind of the heart of my company when the people were working with me and at Lions because partially of me and who I was and the vision I was presenting. And obviously we were very clear on that. We wanted to help our customers maximize their potential. Like I was an electrical engineer. I love the concept of potential. So how do, how do we help our customers maximize their potential? Happen to be in commerce online while we're maximizing our individual potentials. And then that's kind of even involved in like, how do we be the biggest blessing that we can be? I would have never used that word ever. And I remember when my coach first said it to me, you're looking at, especially with this transition into Capgemini, you're looking at how can you be the biggest blessing you can be? And I remember like, I'll never use those words. There's no way I'd ever <laughs> say that. Then this past January, I'm in front of my whole company. And I'm like, how can we be the biggest blessing we can be? To all of our customers. That's great. I love that. So you've talked quite a bit about your wife, Gertrude, and you've mentioned your family. You've got two daughters. Yep. And uh, you and I connect on that level where we have a wife and, and two children, both of whom are daughters. And we've also talked about the effect that they have had on us as men. Mm-hmm. So you've already talked a little bit about manhood and how not just this personal growth journey of yours has helped you get in touch with kind of the feminine side that we all have inside of us, but then also the role that your wife and daughters have played to accelerate 100%. that. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that, please. Yeah. I think, you know, a couple of things on that one being a parent, you know, I think it, it can't uh, do anything except open up your heart. Right. And, and open up, you know, for me, open up my caring for sure. Um, and I think I've always held that from my 
myself as a leader, I've always wanted to have women on my leadership team and always made sure that I had that because I need different perspectives. If I have a leadership team that's all me, why do I need that? I know who I am. Like, I'm not looking for yes people. I want, you know, a woman here. I want a woman here. I want women. I want minorities. I want as much difference as I can get because I know how I think. I want to know how other people think. And how can we bring the best and be the biggest blessing if we're not looking at all different perspectives? You've been teaching for Junto and uh, have been a mentor since we launched six plus years ago. And one of the main reasons that I wanted you involved was because you had been through your own pretty intensive learning when it came to emotional intelligence. And now you're teaching that not only with us, but also at the Wright Foundation, I'm sure in other places. I know you've been bringing some of that to your company over the years. Talk a little bit about maybe two or three specific practices that you had during that time when you were developing these skills. What were a couple of things that you were doing on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis to help develop those skills, which today I imagine are just part of your being? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting to think through that. And it's, sometimes it's hard to think about all the things you've done that get you to where you are, right? Because it's funny because a lot of times people ask like, what's the one thing? And there's no such thing as one thing, right? you know, because there's a lot of things. So I think um, this concept of a kind of an assignment way of living has been an important thing for me. And that was kind of something more that Wright has. But this concept of always being working on something, like always being aware that I'm developing, you know, I'm not done, I'm not baked. And so how am I, what am I working on? And be a little more conscious of what's my cutting edge right now and who am I becoming? Because it's, it's in every moment and it's in every interaction. So I think that's something that I have always carried with me. Like, what am I working on? Like, if you ask me now, I'm still working on this being versus doing very heavily, you know, and that comes into every moment. I'm always looking at it. Am I doing here? Am I trying to prove myself? And, and it's much more about being versus proving. So looking at if I'm trying to prove myself, what's going on with me? Let's back up the tape a little bit. Why am I trying to prove myself? Like, I don't have to do that. If I'm on my own side and if I'm internal, I don't have to prove myself to anyone. Right. So I think having an assignment and having something that's going on, I think is super helpful. And then I've always done a nice job of having outsiders, advisors, mentors, coaches, whatever it would be. So with my business, I set up an advisory board and I thought that was very important, you know, to get some accountability. You have your own business, you don't have to set up accountability for yourself. No one can actually hold me accountable. You know, my name's on the door, but I had to set it up. Let's even have the discipline of putting together a quarterly review and bring it to a board. And we had a paid board member and some friends and, you know, trusted advisors that come to that meeting. But it made us go through the process of what's our risks, you know, and where are we vulnerable? And we do SWATs every year. And so these processes became very important, like doing strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and get the whole company to do that every single year. Super important discipline, right? Because then it's not just me. But I'm gathering from everyone, like, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? And then rolling these up. And then we would use that to, to determine what we're going to work on for the whole next year. So we have this process that kind of feeds back into the advisory board. And then on a personal level and even spiritual level, I've had coaches, you know, and I've effectively used coaches. And, and it's interesting 
because if you look back what I said earlier, why the fuck would you have a coach? Like, why would you, why would you go see someone? And I remember saying to my wife, do you have secrets? Is there something you can't tell me? Like I was so suspicious of this concept, but now the world is different. Like people talk about coaches, you know, people bring coaches into companies, people understand the idea. And I was an athlete, but I still didn't get like, you know, all the best athletes have coaches, but I never really translated that to me as a 23 year old. Do I need a coach? If you asked me, I would have been like, no, what the, why? I know what I'm doing. I'm on my game, but talk to me now. And it's like, of course I have a coach. And why? Because I have blind spots. There's always things I can't see. And then depending on the coach, you know, I always look at it too, like someone who's holding a, a vision up here, because sometimes I forget it. Well, there is this vision that I can articulate sometimes, but when I'm in the day-to-day battle and my head's down, sometimes I forget that vision. I'm not seeing it. So is there someone else that can remind me and scoop me back up? And is there a person I can talk to that I would tell things I'm not going to tell even my business partners, my vulnerability, like when I'm in front of my company and at times I express vulnerability and for sure. And I think that's part of who I am as a leader, but I'm not expressing all my vulnerability because I don't think that's appropriate. But can I go to someone or do I have a group? Like I was an EO for a, a number of years and I had a, a other business groups I was involved where you could say anything and people would understand. And at the same time, there's times where I need a kick in the ass. So I think of it like boxing, going to your corner. Sometimes, you know, you're bleeding and you need your wounds mended and you need a little attaboy and I need someone to tell me, no, you're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. You know, because sometimes I don't know and I don't have the perspective. And then other times I need someone to say, get the fuck out there. Well, no, you're in the wrong direction. You need to go in this direction. Throw more rights. You're not fighting for yourself. You're not being on your own side. You're really someone that has your back. And I think that's been super important uh, for me. And even though I present myself and a lot of people positively project onto me that I have everything handled, none of us have everything handled and we all can use support. So I'd say those groups have served a huge importance for me. Uh, Different coaches and mentors have served a, a huge support for me, obviously my wife and my family. And I think back to what you were saying, I think teaching helps. I always say, you know, you know, campus for the counselors, like every time I'm in front of a group, I'm, I'm teaching myself, I'm learning at a deeper level. And it's a blessing to be, I see it as a way, obviously to give back. If I can help someone not make some of the mistakes I've made, that's awesome and, and pay it forward. But at the same time, I'm learning, like I see it as a very mutual model. I'm not in an expert model. Like, even though some people may see me as an expert, come on, I'm, I'm still learning. I still have my own leadership challenges and happy to share those with people. But it's so fun to share things like the developmental model that I use that helps me every day to your point, like there's a developmental model that's really about awareness. It's kind of a map to know where I am, you know, similar to this feelings wheel, you know, am I in scarcity? Am I feeling hurt? Am I feeling reactive? It doesn't mean I have to do anything with it, but I've worked so long on that awareness piece. So somewhere to feel like, like say I come into a meeting and I'm feeling angry. Why am I feeling angry? What happened? Like, why am I so reactive right now? And to be able to track back and go, oh, someone said something that hurt my feelings or, oh, I was afraid. So now I can catch up and then boom, now I can be in the meeting. And because I'm present, I have a lot more personal power 
in that meaning to be able to read the meaning, decide and choose. Because with awareness, I think comes choice. Uh, it's a very long answer to your question, but a number of things that have really helped me stay conscious and aware and understand that this model I was talking about, it is all about consciousness, awareness, and choice. And I think ultimately, all that is saying is like, I'm the author of my life. There's no victimhood. You know, of course, I go through my phases and my reactivity and all of that. But if I can then be aware and conscious and come back, like, wait a second, who's making the choices in my life? Me. If I don't like them, who's going to change that? Not you. It would be an amazing world if we could all come back to that. <laughs> but I'm trying, you know, I'm trying one person at a time. So you talked already about how much you learn from teaching. And a couple of the corollaries to teaching are coaching and mentoring. What have you found yourself coaching and mentoring other people on, whether they're your direct reports, people who are, you know, uh, your colleagues, friends, your children? What are, you know, a couple of the areas that, and, and especially those where you enjoy that topic area? Yeah, it's funny. I think uh, in the work environment, you know, a lot of times it is around reactivity. You know, I think a lot of my coaching goes um, to people around that, whether it's take a breath, don't react so quickly, don't jump right in. And just to be able to be aware, like there's one thing about being reactive, we're all reactive, but what do you do with it? So I think a lot of times I'm coaching people and especially because we're my customer facing people, you can't, of course you can be reactive, but I'm saying you can't be reactive to that customer. You know, so we've done, we do training and a lot of things around active listening, repeating, just kind of that compassionate and almost create space for someone and just let them know, I hear you and I'm going to take care of it. Don't need to get defensive. Don't need to react because you just take away from it. So I think a lot of coaching and training I try to do is on that. And that's not easy because I'm talking about containment, right? As a concept, how do we as human beings contain and then decide how we want to use our energy. That's what I'm trying to get across. Like, where are you leading to? Like, we're all leading somewhere. We're all leaders. But where are we leading to is the question. So if I can let people be more aware and say, sometimes you don't need to dissipate all that energy, hold it and decide where you want to go with it. And that doesn't mean don't express, but sometimes you're not going to express to a client. You can get off that call and go express to someone, but it's responsible kind of expression. So I think a lot of a lot of my coaching goes into all I mean those are big concepts but you know containment responsibility authority and going away from that victim. Because it's true we can't control always what happens to us but we can control how we react to it. That is in our control. So I think I've always coached on that and I think it's interesting with with my kids I've always coached them probably more on just straight going for it. The value of being present and being in something. And that doesn't mean you win. It doesn't mean there's always a gain. But if you're going to be there, let's be there. You know, and kind of defining lions, family values, like the lions go for it. Like if we're going to be there, we might as well go at it and have fun, right? And, and live life, like I like to say, live life as an adventure there's a lot of kinds of adventure. So it doesn't mean it's always happy. I mean, there's good, there's bad, there's happy, there's sad, but 
if I hold it like an adventure, wow, this adventure of life is amazing. And don't put all the judgments on it. So that's what I try to get across to my daughters and coach them on. And some of the same things, especially as kids are being raised, to get them that to understand that no one's doing anything to them. You know what I mean? That level of responsibility. No one can make you feel a certain way. You're choosing that. And of course, we all want to blame. I'm as much of a blamer as anyone, but I can then get myself to responsibility and understand, wait a second, you know, what's going on with me? So a lot of those coaching and teaching, maybe they come back to awareness, ultimately awareness of self. Because I I still think, and I still try to teach with awareness comes choice. And through that choice, obviously, we have much more personal power. So beyond the work that you've done with social and emotional intelligence, beyond the work you've done with your wife, how else have you invested in your personal growth? Talk a little bit about some of the other things that you've done with relation to personal growth, especially the ones that are more self-directed, non-instructor, non-mentor driven? Interesting question. I think more of the stuff I've done has probably been more instructor-led because I'm looking for a person that is more knowledgeable than me that can teach me things. And I think the non-instructor-led pieces would be finding people in my life that I can model, that I can shadow, people I respect, you know, and people I can learn from. And I think that that is an interesting you know, way to learn for sure. Find those people. Like, how is that person doing that? You know, I'm being curious and being, wait a second, like, wow, that was really good. You know, I'm not beyond stealing things. Like how, how do I develop that skill uh, if I don't think I have it? So definitely that. And I'm not a huge reader, you know, but there's been certain books and things that definitely catch my interest and kind of send me on a path, if that makes sense. Like, uh, I remember reading uh, Peter Senge's Fifth Discipline, and I thought this concept of a learning organization was amazing. And I still talk about that within my own company. Like, wait a second, like my only competitive advantage in my company is our ability to learn and grow. That's awesome. And to get that across to people, like doing SWATs and doing quarterly reviews and postmortems to every project and really incorporating that into our culture because that's the only way we'll stay ahead of the competition. We can't rest on our laurels. So that's amazing. And then all the Jim Collins stuff was very impactful to me, like Good to Great, Built to Last, like all of those books, like really getting this concept of a BHAG. Like I still think about BHAGs, you know, big, hairy, audacious goals. And that's driven me. When I started my business, I was like, I want to be a $50 million Midwest-based IT consulting firm by the time I'm 50. That BHAG drove me for years. And I just missed it. I think we were 65 when I was 51 or something, but I didn't make 50 by 50s. But, you know, I will 100% say if I didn't have that goal, I would have never come close because I just, I wouldn't have thought outside. I wouldn't have stretched beyond, you know, so some of those that I would call impactful books and stories to me, like I still think about those things and it has such resonance to me, like setting those big, hairy, audacious goals, meaning by definition, something you don't think you can do, which is crazy. Like, why would I set a goal if I don't think I can do it? So things like that have been super helpful. Have I ever shared with you what our BHAG is? No. To have a tribe, one million strong. Oh, that's awesome. You know where we are at 
this point, mm-hmm. 259. That's pretty, uh, you know. And we just added three more this week, <laughs> so it went up. But it is. It, it's one of those where I tell people all the time, may not happen in my lifetime. That's not the point. It's what right. we're shooting for. So I can appreciate the value of eHags. So you started this company with your co-founder, Dave, just the two of you. I think when you and I met, you were at like 30 or 40 employees, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you grew it to a few hundred people when uh, you folks were acquired. Now you're overseeing thousands of, of people worldwide. Needless to say, over that course of time, your leadership challenges obviously evolve, right? But that's based on the context that you're in, the consequences that you're facing. Let's kind of put that aside and make this more personal. What are the leadership challenges that you are currently addressing? For sure, my leadership challenges probably always boil back down to being valuable, you know, and and holding myself that way. And I think I would phrase it right now for me as this concept of being versus proving myself. And given that a lot of times my achievement and my striving and doing was based on trying to prove myself. So, you know, can I really, you know, what I would say, be on my own side and just in that discomfort, be okay. You know, and I think that is a leadership challenge because, you know, I've always led my company through action historically. Like I was the number one salesperson forever in my company. And that was where I was comfortable because I felt I could point to something. Look, I sold all these deals, right? And then, you know, Dave and I made a decision at some point to not do sell any deals. Very confronting. So my leadership challenge, you know, continues to come back. Like, do I need to prove myself? And what am I trying to prove? And it's funny, as you get older, and like I said, I'll be 54 next month. I think it's a little bit easier because I can be like, come on you know, rationally at least, but that doesn't mean emotionally there isn't a part of me that wants to always prove myself and always be liked by everyone. Like I want everyone to like me. But when you think about from a leader perspective, gosh, that's limiting. So I think part of what I've been working on under that umbrella of being is calling process, saying the truth. And it doesn't mean I have to be reactive, but just to say, Hey, here's what I see going on. I don't have to do anything with it. You know, and can I start taking more risks and just calling what I see? Hey, I see this and let the anxiety sit somewhere else. And that's been my work over time is driving anxiety down within my organization instead of holding it all for myself. You know, so can I be the visionary now, the visionary leader and hold where we want to go and we want to be the biggest blessing? And that's not a question I would have asked before. But I think myself as that leader, I think a part of it is how am I emerging and am I presenting more of myself and letting people react? And it's kind of a radiation and response instead of before, like, I want to know who you are and then I decide on who I present to you. And in sales, like, it's like a chameleon job. I walk into your office, I look at what books you've read, I look at your pictures on the wall, look at the university you went to, oh, I read that book, oh, you have daughters, I have daughters, oh, 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 you know, how to establish rapport and relate. Instead of just now being, who am I in this world as a leader, and put that out. And some people aren't going to like it, and some people are, but let the people respond who want to respond. 
Nice. Okay, we're going to close with a round of appreciations. I'll go ahead and start. I appreciate two things. One is how far you've come, both professionally and personally. Hmm. I don't tire um, hearing of your story and hearing the details. And each time we meet, I learn something new about <laughs> that. And it inspires me because you know I'm a few years younger than you age-wise, but many years younger than you in terms of uh, growth. And so it provides a lot of inspiration to me. Secondly, I appreciate your effective use of the F-bomb. <laughs> uh, you don't throw it around uh, <laughs> like it's just one of your regular vocabulary words, but you use it very effectively. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for those reflections. You know, I appreciate that. And I appreciate what you're doing. You know, a million people, that's awesome. You know, and I think why I'm engaged and involved with you is because I appreciate the vision and I appreciate the importance to entrepreneurs specifically and to leaders. I appreciate you out there in front and doing it because I think it's really, really important. And I also appreciate it gives me an opportunity to be in front of people and kind of meet part of my mission in terms of passing things on and, and educating and, and mentoring people, which I appreciate. And then throughout this story, too, I'll say uh, throughout our conversation, you know, I definitely appreciate uh, my wife and her role that she's had in making me a better person. Uh, and obviously my daughters, you know, Morgan and Hannah, appreciate uh even though they probably didn't do it consciously, but all the teaching they have done for me. Awesome. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate you being on here. Thank you very much. The earliest memory I have of intentionally doing something for my personal growth was about 25 years ago. I had just bought a book called Dig Your Well Before You're Thirsty, which was all about relationship building and networking. I bought it in response to my experience going out there, attending events, and trying to network with people. As an introvert, I found the whole process pretty uncomfortable. It felt a lot like the inauthentic schmoozing, as we like to call it. And when I finished the book, the big question that I asked myself was, how do I get better at this thing called relationship building? So I intentionally went out and bought a book for that purpose. And that book was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's a book that almost anyone who is engaged in personal growth has read, if not once, multiple times. In fact, in the years since I read that book, as I've talked about it, I've come across so many people who not only swear by it, but who can also recite very specific lines and passages and examples from the book. It's a requirement for anybody, in my opinion, who is devoted to getting better as a human or as a business person. In any case, it was the first time that I actually with great intent, wanted to become better at something as an adult. And thereafter, I began reading more books, buying more books, borrowing more books from the library on topics as wide-ranging as communication and business, leadership to philosophy, meditation, and spirituality. This all continued through my 20s and into my 30s. But to some degree, I'll also say that it was very limited. What I mean is that I remained an active reader and thinker, but in hindsight, I admit that I was not an active doer. So even though I had read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I realized that I was not actually putting it into use on a daily basis. 
Now, it's safe to say that it probably seeped into my subconscious and it was affecting me, but I can't say for sure that it was having an impact on a daily basis. In fact, it really wasn't until the age of about 40 when I first began learning and practicing emotional intelligence that I can honestly say that I began doing the things that I was reading and studying. And since then, I've increasingly made doing the focus of my efforts on top of the continued reading and thinking that marked those earlier years. And even today, doing is a big focus of my efforts. And I still read as much, if not more, as I used to. I spend a great deal more amount of time thinking and reflecting than I used to. But ultimately, on a daily basis, what it all comes down to for me is the doing part. Going back to the conversations with Deborah and Rich, I found a common thread. Rich Lyons is the only person I've met so far who's been intentionally practicing emotional intelligence longer than me, or actually doing emotional intelligence things on a daily basis. He's dedicated himself to making him better as a human being and as a professional since he met his wife, and he shared some of those stories in our conversation. Deborah Jackson has been setting a series of annual goals across multiple categories for many years. She even acknowledged that she doesn't hit some of those goals. But the point is, is that she continues to go through the exercise of setting those goals and then during the year, trying to do as much as she can to achieve them. And since her time with Junto, I've personally observed this focused, diligent effort on improving herself as a leader, a mother, and a wife. Both of them have shown a history of doing or of practice, putting to use what they learn through the various methods of personal growth that they engage in. And so as I reflected on both of the conversations, I couldn't help but wonder if they too might say that they lead a personal growth lifestyle. I want to talk about this idea of lifestyle. Our lifestyle in general is marked by the things that we actually spend our life doing. The dictionary says it's the way that someone lives, the interests, opinions, behaviors, and orientations of an individual, a group, or a culture. Some of us build a lifestyle based on adventure and travel. We spend a good amount of time and money traveling to unique places around the globe, looking for an adrenaline rush, creating unique memories for ourselves, our family, and our friends, and of course, looking for those really incredible Instagram moments. Others build a lifestyle on family, community, and faith, whereby we spend many of our non-work hours with the people who we love and treasure the most. We have close relationships with people in our neighborhood, and we may even be associated with a community center or a house of worship where we build really strong relationships and make it a point to spend time not only at those places, but with those people. And others build a lifestyle based on entertainment. We spend a good amount of money on music, we attend concerts, we buy music, we spend hours listening to it. We might go to comedy clubs, we might watch a lot of television, or we may go see many movies. Personal growth, however, is a little bit unique when it comes to lifestyle. It's not as simple as how we spend our time and money, like the examples that I just gave. In fact, I draw a parallel between personal growth and school. They're very interrelated if you think about it. Just because we go to school doesn't mean that we live a learning lifestyle. To live a learning lifestyle, we don't just have to go to class. We must do our homework, reflect on what we're learning, study for the tests, 
engage in intellectual conversations with our peers and our teachers, and most importantly, apply what we're learning to how we interact with the world. Similarly, when it comes to personal growth, we must not only go to class, we must do the homework, the reflection, the studying, the discussing, and most importantly, the application. So if we take this idea of personal growth and apply it to lifestyles, what exactly does a personal growth lifestyle look like? Well, I don't know for sure, but the more I think about it, the more I keep coming back to the idea of practice. I believe that a personal growth lifestyle is when someone takes in what they learn, discover, think about, discuss, and they actually do something about it. So back when I was first reading those books in my 20s and 30s, I was consuming a lot of information. It might even go as far as saying that I was learning a lot. But was I really living a personal growth lifestyle? Or was I effectively faking it without knowing it? That's for another time. But for now, I really base my belief of personal growth lifestyle on this idea of practice. Today, I can listen to self-help podcasts or read personal development books. But until I begin to put that learning to use on a regular basis, I'm not quite sure I'm living a personal growth lifestyle. And how do I know if something good is even coming from it? How do I know if there's positive impact? How do I measure that success, especially in this current era that we're living in, where everything is data-driven? Let's go back to Rich and Deborah. Their growth lifestyles, presuming that they lead them, have not only benefited them personally in terms of overall happiness and home life, but also professionally. Rich has attained a level of professional accomplishment that many of us founders and entrepreneurs dream of. And Deborah has used her personal growth lifestyle to turn around the organizational culture and health of the business, something that I've been witness to over the last several years. And they leave us with some intriguing questions. How much of it has been luck and how much of it has not? What specifically have they done that contributed to those successes? What might their lives look like if they didn't lead a personal growth lifestyle? And how would they even respond to the idea that they may live a personal growth lifestyle? Perhaps the most important question though, isn't about them, but rather us. If we're among those who believe that we lead a personal growth lifestyle, after listening to this episode, the big question is, what will we do about it? If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.